Welcome to the Institute of World Politics podcast. IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. To learn more, please visit www.iwp.edu. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Institute of World Politics. It was supposed to rain. It's beautiful, so I don't mind the absentee landlords. I hope more will come and enjoy the afternoon with us. We have a very exciting program, as always, at this time of the year. Our own Maria Luchesca will talk about a bunch of Americans of Polish extraction who, with the presidential blessing, I mean President Wilson's blessing, uh, joined a Polish force set up in Canada because the U.S. was not at war, so President Wilson had to violate essentially the United States Constitution to permit this caper to happen. Other Americans of ethnic backgrounds wanted to do the same thing. He said, absolutely not. But Maria will regale us about this tale of Americans of Polish descent fighting in World War One and Polish uniform of a state that didn't exist on the Western Front and then uh, getting themselves over to Poland to continue against Ukrainian nationalists and against the communists most laudably in 1919 and 1920. Next we'll have an alumnus of ours, Matt Bryan, who will tell us all about the impact of emigration on the changing face of Europe. So far you have mostly heard tales from uh, from uh, Western Europe and according to mainstream narrative if you are not excited about a wave pouring in from the south that means you're a racist. Much of the ruling elite in the EU and in Germany in particular believes that we can solve our labor problem by importing unskilled people. They also argue that the mass immigration that has taken place relieves poverty in the south by importing it to the north. Yet what the narrative eminently misses is that when the unskilled move from the south to the north, they exacerbate inequality, which is also another sacred cow of the EU and German elites. Bringing unskilled people means some unquipped that the gazillionaires in Paris or on Côte d'Azur <laughs> and in Silicon Valley can now turn off their air conditioning and they'll have people fanning them so they could feel better about themselves. So th that is a net result of um, unstructured immigration. Um, some other people, people have pointed out that uh, unstructured chaotic immigration will tax the welfare state. Europe's welfare state 
came to existence, complements of the U.S. taxpayer. America's nuclear umbrella allowed the Europeans, Western Europeans, who were thus defended from the Soviets, to spend the money earmarked for defense for various social engineering projects, including um, welfare. However, the Danes have no idea that their exercise in utopia complement of the U.S. taxpayer would then have to be commodious enough to welcome people who didn't look like the Danes. Thus, problems have appeared in Western Europe, in Denmark, Belgium, the Netherlands, France. But Matt will tell you all about it, and he will prognosticate as well as guesstimate how that impacts, impacts Central and Eastern Europe which hasn't yet had to grapple with uh, large groups of visitors from the south. They had to deal with uh, the transit. So Hungary ended up building a wall, but people who arrived in the eastern part of the EU, so in the old post-Soviet zone, tend to use it only as a springboard to welfare havens of Sweden or paradise of Germany and in particular Great Britain. They don't want to stay. So now there is a, um, an effort underway by Brussels to deport the people that Western Europeans don't want to Central and Eastern Europe. Anyway. That's going to be an exciting topic because it may be to an extent counterintuitive. It hasn't happened, so why should we worry about anything? It hasn't happened. And please remember, Europe is not the United States. We have a very simple requirement here. Speak English, and then you're an American. In Europe, they recognize your last name. You can be third generation born in France or in Denmark. And I'm not talking about visitors from outside of Europe. I'm talking about internal European migration. If you're a Drovandi in Germany, you're Italian. It doesn't matter that it was your grandfather who had moved. We don't have that in America. So we shouldn't look with our eye at the problems of Europe. We should look and scrutinize them on their own terms, not with what we know and what we understand, or we think we understand. And finally, the piece of resistance is going to be Arrow's masterpiece. Mr. Orlando has come all the way from Princeton, which is a different civilization. <laughs> <laughs> This is, by the way, the last outpost of uh, Western civilization in academia in uh, the United States of America, except on the undergraduate level we have places like Hillsdale College, uh, Christendom, Patrick Henry College, or the University of Dallas, and the University of Chicago is still pretty good for it retains its great books program, but as far as graduate schools are concerned, 
you're looking at. That's basically it. So we always welcome your generosity. That's my pitch. Enjoy, otherwise, uh, your experience here at IWP. Without much further ado, I'd like to present Maria Lucheska, who is multi-talented. <coughs> She's a mom, uh, a new mom, multi-talented and multilingual. She knows, uh, in addition to English, uh, Polish, Swedish, and French. And she will tell us about uh, Americans who fought illegally with the president's blessing. It's my great pleasure to welcome you here today. In less than two weeks, uh, on Veterans Day, Poland is going to celebrate its 100th anniversary of independence. And I decided to give a lecture um, about... Sorry. And because of that, I decided to give a lecture about General Haller's Blue Army, an army of Polish Americans which was conceptualized on the American soil, which was created and trained on the Canadian soil, and which was dispatched to France, and from France traveled to Poland, and sealed the fate of Poland as a free country for the next 20 years in the interwar period. So first of all, I would like to read the words of Henry Kissinger, uh, which summed up uh, the role of America uh, in the First World War. And what is the most important to understand here is that America entered after the First World War the world as the world power. This is, this is the moment of making of America the global power and the global player in international affairs. So Kissinger says, amidst the rubble and the disillusionment of three years of carnage, America stepped into the international arena with a confidence, a power, and an idealism that were unimaginable to its more jaded European allies. And this is very important. The, uh, President Wilson, in his speech in Congress, puts forward the idea of self-determination of nations. Here before, America used to be uh, a conglomerate of monarchies, and the monarchs of those kingdoms were getting together and deciding about the fates of nations inhabiting their kingdoms. However, it was all to change as a result of the First World War. General Haller's Blue Army, the National Army, the army whose the most important feature is that it was born before the state was born. It was born out of the national consciousness of the Poles living in America, uh, is a good um, uh, image, a good illustration of this idea of self-determination of nations. To understand uh, why we had Poland reborn, I would like to remind um, sad Polish history. This is the Poland in the 18th century. It was the largest European country at that point which as a result of internal weakness and uh, exhaustion with many wars uh, was partitioned at the end of the 18th century. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. There you go. Oh, the pointer is barely visible. So, here we have the, and this, this light 
turquoise parts are the ones that were partitioned by Russia. The green parts are the ones that were partitioned by, I'm sorry, the pointer doesn't work. Um, the ones here were partitioned by Austria and the light blue parts were partitioned by Prussia. So throughout the 19th century, Poland doesn't exist. Of course, Poles, they don't want to accept that situation and they organize national uprisings. Those national uprisings all end in failure and as a result, wave of repression follows. Their uh, property is confiscated. The male uh, participants of the uprisings are deported to Siberia and sentenced for many years of um, obligatory sojourn there. And as a result, we have emigration from Poland. We have subsequent waves of emigration, political one, but also the economic one, because the partitioning powers realize that they have to keep the, the former Polish territories low, because they want to avoid uh, Mayan in those parts of their kingdoms, so they don't invest in those parts, and they uh, gradually become poorer and poorer, so there is more and more economic migration from there. People who migrate from the former Polish territory to America they organize around Catholic parishes. The reason for it is very simple. They cannot speak English, so they are attracted by the centers of Polish language, which are created around the churches. So, uh, as a result, their identity is infused with the, uh, with the religious um, consciousness, which is influencing their whole outlook on the world. What is more, they interact with other migrants, they interact with the Irish, they interact with the Germans, and as a result, they perceive that they are different, that their customs are different, that their behavior is different. So the sense of Polish nationality is born on the American soil much faster than among the Polish lower strata of the society on the European continent. So uh, as a result, we enter the 20th century of Polish Americans having the sense of duty towards the nation and the religion and in, in that peculiar situation when they find themselves, when they can better their position in America, when they are still in touch with the old homeland sending money over to, to their families, they see themselves as children who owe some allegiance and some duties to the mother Poland. Pro-independence activities of Polonia that I'm going to discuss can be divided into political lobbying, paramilitary organizations, battle preparedness, and humanitarian help. However, it all stems from the way they were organizing into paramilitary organizations. This is the way how they are, how they're pictured, their duty towards their homeland, the duty to be prepared for a major um, military altercation that will allow them to set Poland free. But from that paramilitary organization, there stands political lobbying because they want to have certain rights as associations. The battle preparedness, this is what they were doing, they were training. And there was also an outlet for women in all those organizations because they focus on the humanitarian health. Uh, so it's very important to understand uh, the making of the Polish-American nation, so to say, in the 19th century in America. Uh, 
people first people trickle in here after national uprisings. Then there are subsequent waves of economic migration of people from lower strata of Polish society. However, those who are somehow connected to the national uprisings, either themselves or through the memories of their um, uh, transfer to them by their parents, infuse that Polish-American um, Polish -American, um, society uh, with the sense of duty towards uh, the homeland and, uh, and the sense of injustice, I would say, that this was something wrong and harmful and, and very unjust for Poland to be partitioned. And this gives very strong feelings to the Polish-American community and I would I would say that those feelings are still lingering somewhere in, in this community. So uh, as a result of Franco-Prussian War at the end of the 19th century, Poles in America realized that now with the Germany unified, it will take a major international conflict to allow Poland to emerge from, from partitions and uh, they keep up, um, they kind of sense the tension that leads to the First World War. On 1910, they organized here in Washington DC a huge Polish-American rally. Um, it is organized when the statue of uh, a Polish general of the American Revolutionary War is being unveiled, the statue of General Tadeusz Kościuszko. This, there is a, a great commemoration of the Battle of Grunwald, 500th anniversary of the Battle of Grunwald at, this, at the same time, and all those Poles uh, march through the center of Washington, D.C. They gather around the, around the monument, and on the spur of the moment, uh, they put forward a motion uh, saying that Poles have the right to an independent national existence and consider it their sacred duty to strive for the political independence of their homeland. This motion is so shocking to the representatives who came to the anniversary from Poland that they resign officially from their posts because they are afraid of repercussions back home. So the Poles from Poland say, no, 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 we, we don't want that. But the Americans like, are like, yeah, we want free Poland. And this is 1910. On 1914, there is another event which is amazing. You can picture it now. Uh, because the situation is a little similar. Namely, uh, in 1914, uh, US intervenes in Veracruz in Mexico. And what do the Polish-American organizations, paramilitary organizations do? They sent a note to the Ministry of War that they would be very happy to provide 30,000 battle-ready volunteers to aid American military forces. So imagine that nowadays any national group in America gets organized and sends, um, and sends a note to the Ministry of Defense that they have 30,000 battle-ready volunteers at the disposal of, of the government. So the American government was like, oh Lord, where are all those armed people, armed organized people from? They were very surprised, they, they kept very, um, very distance from, from, from the Poles. However, this declaration gave a lot of positive press to the Polish-American community and uh, popularized the so-called Polish cause in America. 
so the implications of world conflict of world conflict for Poland were clear. Only in a major international uh, war can Poland emerge. Uh, politically savvy upper classes of Poland were conscious of that. They were busy lobbying for Poland on um, in Great Britain, France, and also in the USA. Here, uh, I need to mention the overlooked role of Roman Dmowski, who was so hard, so busy with lobbying for Poland in in the British um, Foreign Office that he and his supporters were called the Black Hundred. Uh, because uh, they were really fighting hard for the Polish cause. And of course, those uh, politically savvy leaders, they knew that a large army gives us political leverage. And this is something which is very important uh, to emphasize, because in Poland, uh, when you learn about uh, General Haller's army, they usually say, oh, and there was this Polish army in France who came from France and helped us secure the borders. The the reason um, the, the, the whole importance of this army is completely overlooked because there, there would be no argument on the side of any Polish politician uh, to be taken seriously had he not had 100,000 people's army behind his claims. Uh, so the fact that they were able to organize it uh, was an amazing achievement and this was uh, one of the crucial arguments uh, in the <coughs> negotiations in Versailles after the First World War. So obviously First World War was a window of opportunity and, and the Polish Balkans uh, which, which were um, Polish Balkans started as uh, separate paramilitary organizations and they in the end united in, in realizing that only if they unite they have some possibility of achieving their aims. Uh, but in 1916 America is still not at war with, uh, with Germany. America is still neutral in the First World War and the Poles are here uh, ready to fight for their homeland. So, it's a very curious situation because Poles, Polish-American circles, Polish Balkans, Polish politicians, they are pressurizing the American government. And the American government is, is very skeptical. Again, uh, this whole history is uh, presented in, in a very unequivocal manner uh, in Poland. They say, oh, there was a support of President Wilson and, and he wanted free Poland. and." He helped us to raise from the ashes, so to say. But it's not really that obvious, because President Wilson has to be cautious with Congress. He has to be cautious with the European powers. He doesn't want to um, make any false step in his policies towards Russia. He doesn't want to um, anger Germany. So it's not so obvious and it wasn't as easy as, is, uh, as it is popularly believed to lobby for Poland. And uh, we have uh, two avenues of activity of Polish Balkans. They undertake activities here in America, uh, getting organized, organizing tr uh, undercover training for, uh, for the future military, military leaders of the future Polish military but they also scout their opportunities in Canada. 
and through their private connections they are able to secure contacts with the uh, Canadian Ministry uh, of Defense and they are able to send uh, people for training in Canada. And again, of course, it needs to happen surreptitiously because uh, when you're a citizen of America, you are not supposed to train for uh, any other military force of any other country. Uh, so this is very important to understand that Poles are active in many fields. They, they seek opportunity here in America. At the same time, they, they try to uh, find opportunities in Canada. And why in Canada? Because Canada is a part of the British Empire. And British Empire is at war with Germany. So they figured, okay, even if America is not, maybe the Canadians will allow us to train because after all, it, it's the war of their empire. So we have um, people training in America, we have officers training school at the University of Toronto. Uh, and then uh, we also have the pressure of Congress and President Wilson uh, via Paderewski. Paderewski was a well a well-known pianist, he was a famous world star, and he was a personal friend of President Wilson. So his personal input and his vision of Poland, all the information about Poland and its fate that he was personally given to the president were also inspiring President Wilson in his ideas of self-determination of nations. This is a very curious propaganda piece from, from the times of uh, the First World War. You can see here Poland in its uh, pre-partition shape. And the Poles present their cause here in America as the existence of Poland being necessary to counterbalance Germany. So the Poles here see themselves as the representatives of a major European power that needs to come back to the European scene. And I, I, I think that this piece illustrates very well uh, the vision that they have. Because if you will see later on in what, within what borders Poland came back to life when it finally did. On April 6, 1917, the uh, U.S. declares war on Imperial Germany. And this is the moment when the Polish cause accelerates because now it is possible for the Poles to lobby harder for, uh, for the nascence of the, uh, of the Polish armed forces. Of course, America is very skeptical. They don't want to have any ethnic armed group having its own army on their own soil. And there is to and fro between the representatives of the Polish-American community and um, the Secretary of War. The, there are also notes exchanged between the British Foreign Office and the American Foreign Office. Uh, and they finally, the Americans start to yield. And first, in August, Secretary of State Robert Lansing uh, makes a very curious, cautious declaration that um, it would be possible to have an army created here in America, which could potentially back up the Polish government if it were created. So it is very, very diplomatically put, but all in all, finally, the Poles uh, managed to persuade uh, Americans to agree to the formation of the Polish-American army, and on September 27, 1917, uh, they get President Wilson's approval for it. 
So this is the whole note of Robert Lansing. Uh, you can see a further suggestion has been made that such government being recruiting Polish residents in this country, the armies are recruited to be trained in Canadian cars supplied by the English. So basically Americans say, okay, uh, people who live in America and are not American citizens uh, but are of Polish descent are very welcome to associate, you can go train in Canada. So Americans are very, very diplomatically cautious here. So the recruitment for the Polish army in France begins. The recruits are between 18 and 40 years old. They uh, are all category 5, so they are non-citizens. Uh, and selection is rather careful. So for instance, the sole breadwinners of the families are excluded from the draft. Uh, it also needs to be mentioned here that because throughout the first three years of war, America was not at war, and the prospects for the creation of the Polish-American army were not clear. Many Polish-Americans joined the American army to fight the Germans, because in their identity that I have mentioned before, where the fight for their homeland is a sort of religious duty, they didn't differentiate between their homeland of America and their homeland of Poland. So. Of course, they wanted to fight for Poland, but if the only option was there to fight for America, they did so. So the, in proportion to the number of Poles in the population of America at that time, when you see at the composition of the national composition of the American army, Poles are overrepresented. So they get organized in America, they go uh, to train in Canada, it all uh, happens pa parallelly. The number of recruits is so large that uh, they have to have a special camp set up because the facilities uh, planned for them in Toronto cannot house them. So they end up in a camp on the border between America and Canada, close to Buffalo, to Niagara Falls, which is called Padalko Shusakani training takes place between September 28 and 1917 and March 26, 1919. And recruits are dedicated, resilient, they have to build their own winter barracks because it was previewed only as a, as a summer camp. So there is a lot of determination on the part uh, of the Polish recruits. There are also technical difficulties, there is no manual of uh, military drill in Polish, so it needs to be created initially. Uh, it's not very professional, so those who are learning at the beginning have to relearn later on the um, more proper translation of commands. Uh, and what is very curious, there is no shooting drill. They are training military drill, they have classes in tactics, but there is no shooting drill for them. So they, later on, when they are finally dispatched to uh, France, out of 22,395, 20,720 goes to Europe, uh, they, they are battle ready in theory, but they still have to practice shooting, which I found very ironic, and at the same time sad. 
So the uh, ethnic composition of the campus, 62% Russian Poles, 32% Austrian Poles, 3% German Poles, and 3% other nationalities. So in France, uh, they get organized under the French flag because um, the reason why the organization of the Polish army in France was possible was the decree of the French prime minister that the French are going to organize a Polish army. Uh, which which was the catalytical point for for the nascence of the of the General Hallen's army. So you can see all to to the left. You can see the uh, uniform of the Polish uh, Polish soldier from the from the Hallen's army. So it has the light blue uniform which the French uh, had. However, it has uh, a Polish four-cornered hat. And it also uh, has um, Polish eagle on the buttons and, certain, and some distinctions. And here it's, it's, is another major point in the history of uh, in the history of the Blue Army. They arrive battle ready to the state of complete chaos. The French didn't know how to deal with the Poles. Basically, they were trying to organize them. Uh, along the rules of their own colonial units. And the Poles were absolutely not agreeing to the methods that the French used. So the Poles nearly mutinied because the French were trying to discipline them by flogging, by uh, slapping them off. And the Poles would absolutely have no, uh, no such thing. And when they were joined by the American Poles, the opposition to such methods was even stronger because even though they were a reference for the Polish-American army, they were still Americans. Nobody is going to slap them on the face. Uh, so finally, um, due to the advice given by some Polish Falcons, um, this problem was solved because it was requested that rec that. French recruits uh, of French soldiers from the French army of Polish descent become the superior for, for the Polish units. So those were people who were in the French army, but they understood Polish culture, they were immersed in it, they uh, understood the Polish way of thinking and also Polish egalitarian tradition, which certainly was not the French. So, uh, especially well remembered is Colonel Yashinsky, who was responsible for the processing center at Sea Legion, who organized the whole center for the Polish American Army. He restored the financial accountability of the unit. And this moment is the turn in the history of the army because what heretofore seemed to be only an idea which is going to die a death suddenly materializes. You have this uh, core of the forces, well-trained, proud, ready for battle, coming from America, and other people start to flock. This army, uh, ultimately, I, I will talk about its ethnic composition, but the Americans make it just in time to participate in some uh, in some fights with the Germans in France. And this gives Poland a place by the negotiating table in Versailles, which is, politically speaking, a major achievement. Because at, at this point, 
We have our representatives by the table. It is Roman Mowski who can advocate for the cause of Poland. So it's not only the fact that the Blue Army came from America and helped secure the borders physically. Their participation in the battles in France granted Poland the political entrance into the, into into the negotiating table. So ultimately, General Haller's army is numbering 80,000 people in France, American nucleus, and European records who come from all over the place. American Poles, Canadian Poles, Brazilian Poles, Polish immigrants from Holland, Poles from the ranks of French army, Polish prisoners of war from France, Germany, and Austria, Poles from Odessa, Siberia, Mormons, Polish fugitives from the, from the Russian army. The remaining 20,000 are soldiers which are who are formerly under the command of the Blue Army, but are, but are still stranded in the uh, territories of the formal Imperial Russia. But formally, they are members of the Blue Army. And there is a stalemate. For four months, this, uh, for five months after the armistice, this army is waiting to be dispatched to Poland. And there is a huge discussion whether they should travel by ship, which would be a, a favorable way of arriving in Poland, uh, and uh, getting off the ships in Gdańsk, or whether they should go by sealed trains through Germany. And the Germans don't want them to allow to arrive in Gdańsk, because they think that if 100,000 Polish soldiers get off ships in Gdańsk, they're going to overtake Gdańsk, which was supposed to have a status of the free city. So there, there is an ongoing discussion how to dispatch the Poles. The Poles are getting nervous because they want to go to Poland. The Germans don't want them to go to Poland. And there is also political pressure because Gdańsk is a strategic point on the Baltic Sea. And the Poles think, yes, we deserve Gdańsk. And the Germans, and the Germans say, no way, you're getting Gdańsk. So when uh, finally the decision is taken to allow the Blue Army to go in sealed trains to Germany, this is perceived by many Poles as a major political failure of the Polish, uh, of the Polish political leadership. So they finally arrive in uh, Poland in Kampalevo. Again, it's, it's just a small city in the middle of nowhere. It, they were to arrive in this small location because the Germans were afraid of some uh, political demonstration on, on the part of the Poles. And at the moment, General Haller arrived in Poland, he sent a telegram to the um, general Piłsudski that he is submitting his army to Piłsudski's command. And it is very important to understand the political differences between Piłsudski and Haller. Haller was generally perceived as a man of the national democracy. And uh, he knew Dmowski. Dmowski was involved in the, in the organization of the Blue Army in France. And uh, many supporters, supporters of national democracy uh, thought that Haller's army is going to become the force supporting um, competition to Piłsudski. So this telegram is a, is a political declaration too. <coughs> and here I, I would like to show you uh, what happened as a result of the First World War. On the right, on, <clears throat> on the left, you see the um, 18th century Poland. On the, on 
on the right on the right you see the Poland in its present shape and then the Poland in its interwar shape and the Poland in the initial shape as you see on on the other map so after the first world war Poland was not restored in its previous borders so many Poles felt that they have the right to fight for their border in the east, even though by, uh, by way of the Versailles Treaty, the Blue Army was not supposed to fight for the eastern border. But the Poles thought, oh, we're losing lands anyway, so we're going to establish the border in the east wherever we want to. And uh, here, very briefly, uh, the the story which I find a little bit tragic and a little bit ironic of, of the Blue Army uh, because they were, in comparison to other Polish forces at that point, they were very well trained and they were battle ready and battle experienced. Poland was uh, destroyed completely during the First World War. It was a very poor country and definitely um, the Blue Army was a very welcome addition to its military forces. Meanwhile, General Piłsudski was determined to dismantle the Blue Army as soon as possible. A part of the reasons for it was practical because they were created in France and they were, uh, and they were organized along the rules of the French army, including the remuneration, which was just too high for the, for the Pope, for Poland. So Piłsudski wanted to integrate them into the new Polish army as soon as possible. However, the back, let's say the backstage of the story is that he really believed that they are a, a force that can still be used by political forces to support his opposition. So he wanted to dismantle them as soon as possible. And the order to dismantle, uh, dismantle the Blue Army came in April 1920 when there was still war ongoing with the Bolsheviks because none of the neighbors of Poland was delighted that there is a new country created. And almost every uh, border of Poland between 1918 and 1921 was a burning border. There were altercations all over the place. And um, General Haller's army had a very successful uh, path of record, so to say. They helped to secure the border in Ukraine, Silesia, Pomerania. There was a famous act of, marry of marrying of the Poland to the sea when the General Haller got, got to, the, to the sea and uh, threw his <coughs> ring uh, to the Baltic because Poland had a, a very tiny, uh, tiny piece of access to the Baltic uh, borderline uh, close to Gdynia. So they are in the middle of war. There is, there is the very savage war in the East, first against the Ukrainian nationalists, then against the Bolsheviks. Bolsheviks are advancing. They want to get together with the Bolsheviks in Germany and go farther west in Europe and, uh, and spread revolution uh, all over Western Europe. But we have those Haller's units there who are fighting for every centimeter of their ground. They are very valiant. They have, um, they gained the nickname of the Iron Brigade because they are uh, so uh, brave when facing Budionis mounted army. And here 
you have to understand uh, the difference of culture. Buryoni's army is organized along the lines of, of Mongol army. So they take no prisoners, they have no provisions, if they want to eat, they have to steal the food. They have to rob the civilians. So they are motivated to win not only because they want to win. They are motivated because they have to win to eat and to, and to sleep and to have further provisions. So they are exceptionally savage. And to me, it seems very tragic the fate of the Polish-Americans who want to fight for their country and they go to fight for Poland, they find themselves on the eastern border and they die in in the death which can be described as the death from the Middle Ages because some of them die uh, because they're uh, cut to pieces with sabers. Of course the, the Budiani tortures the prisoners, there are all sorts of atrocities but finally the, the Poles manage to stabilize the border, they, they push off the Bolsheviks uh, in Warsaw uh, after the Battle of Warsaw, and as you can see, the, the red color describes the Polish border, which was uh, um, settled as a result of uh, armed action. So it's most of the time. And even though they are so brave and so valiant, they're still this unpleasant situation of them being demobilized in the middle of the battle because the Battle of Warsaw is in August 1920 whereas the demobilization order comes in April 1920. And again, many Poles idolize Marshal Piłsudski, they don't want to talk about unsavory details from his past, but this is one of those unsavory details. When he tells people who made a tremendous effort to come to Europe and defend Poland in the middle of the battle, well, some of you are too old. This is the first. Um, this is the first uh, order where when he demobilized the the oldest soldiers, and then there's the second order when he says, "Well, we don't need you anymore." When it's quite obvious we do, and those people are waiting in the internment camps in Grudziądz for months because Polish government is too poor to take them back to America. Meanwhile, there is a battle of Warsaw, so they are requested by not really by their leadership, but by uh, their immediate superiors to come back to the battleground because we need you people. And some of them volunteer and they go to Warsaw to help in the siege, uh, to help defend uh, during the siege of Warsaw. So in the end, it took a special decision of the, of the Congress to authorize Ameri American military ships to take uh, the Poles back home. A number of uh, a number of organizations <coughs> chipped in to clothe them and feed them and help them find a uh, way back home here in, when they were here in America. And ultimately, out, out of twenty approximately twenty one thousand who went to um, to Poland, fourteen thousand came back by nineteen twenty three. So it adds irony to their fate that first they come to Poland, they serve Poland, they defend the borders, and then they are interned and, and they are informed that, well, you have to wait because we haven't figured out how, how to send you back home. Uh, and 
I just wanted to mention very briefly another important aspect, uh, humanitarian activities of Polish Americans. Because they were so focused on the fate of Poland, they not only thought about the Blue Army, but they were also thinking about sending food to war-ravaged Poland. Many people were starving, they were uh, dying from typhoid fever. So every pair of hands was needed. And um, the success of, of the um, Polish nurses can be exemplified uh, by data, for instance, where the, um, where the Polish nurses showed up in hospitals on the Polish eastern border, the infant mortality rate was dropping by 80%, for instance. So even though those uh, forces were not, uh, were not large, the Polish White Cross and the Polish Grey Samaritans, who were both organized by wife of Ignacy Paradarewski, um, were not as numerous, but um, they had um, tremendous input into uh, ameliorating the quality of life of uh, normal citizens of Poland. And according to different estimations, uh, the financial help given by the American Poles, Poland and, and Poles, in the period between 1914 and 1920, the, mo the most modest estimation is at approximately $6 billion of dollars from 100 years ago. More, uh, more thorough estimates that take into account also the cost of war bonds that were issued among the Polish Americans during the war estimates it at approximately 20 billion, which would be much more nowadays. So at the end of my lecture, I would like to say special thanks to the Polish American Veteran Association, because the spirit, indomitable spirit of the Polish veterans inspired this lecture. I wanted to remind us about their fate Many of them, after coming to America, uh, were destitute. Many of them were handicapped and had no, uh, no rights to any veteran benefit because Poland, during the uh, time when they were fighting, was not existing yet. So it was not able to sign uh, any agreements with the American government. And in spite of all those uh, difficulties, which actually pushed them for, to form the Polish-American Veteran Association, they have always remained faithful to Poland and they have always remembered uh, the years and the fights in Poland uh, with warm heart. Many of them have um, preserved their uniforms till the end of their lives. And I think that we should remember about all those people and about the spirit that told people who had no uh, nation state that they should get organized and fight for it. And this is also the testimony to the Poles as political nation, that even without their country, they were in political terms mature enough to bring it back from overseas. Thank you.